Hi, my name is Yasmin Terehi. I recently completed my two-month transformational leadership program and the results were powerful. If you want to live an exciting life and fulfill your highest potential in 2023 and beyond, I have an incredible opportunity for only a few more individuals to join the next cohort. I will personally be coaching a small group on how to discover and clear your limiting beliefs, how to manage your energy instead of your time, how to tap into the power of your intuition, and how to use discernment so that you can start living a life full of ease, abundance, and flow. As someone who has helped countless entrepreneurs and CEOs open doors of possibility they never thought existed, I can tell you that this strategy will completely transform your life. Best part, you'll 10X your output and unlock your creative genius. I'll work with you weekly to overcome your limiting beliefs and transform that into a new self-concept. I'll teach you how to create clarity, systems and processes, and I'll also help you develop your intuition. You'll get access to some of the best material that will also help you manage your energy, and you'll get access to guided meditations that are not available anywhere else. This method is so effective. If you'd like to join the waitlist, you can find the link in the show notes or navigate to www.yasmintarehi.com backslash gateways hyphen to hyphen awakening backslash. Hi, my name is Yasmin Terehi, and this is Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one conversations with leading experts in wellness, well-being, and spirituality. Today's episode is with Freddie Silva. He's a best-selling author, leading researcher of ancient civilizations, restricted history, sacred sites, and their interaction with consciousness. He's also the leading expert on crop circles, and he's published eight books in six languages and produced 14 documentaries. And right now he is described as perhaps the best metaphysical speaker in the world right now for two decades. He's been an international keynote speaker, and he's been on Gaia TV, the History Channel, and hundreds of radio shows. I learned about Freddie through Dr. Francesca McCartney, so I want to give her a big shout out. And I'm so excited to welcome him to the show. So welcome to the show, Freddie. Hello, Yasmin. <laughs> so Freddie, to kick it off, I'd love to get a sense from you what ancient civilization has piqued your interest the most and why? Oh, uh, all of them. Um, and the reason why I say that is because uh, they're all interlinked. Uh, when we go back into the deep past, there's actually no such thing as uh, civilizations that were working by themselves. It turns out that uh, when you research these people and you actually ask them for their uh, personal histories, because after all, they were much more connected to their histories than the academics ever were, um, it turns out that they're all interconnected. And that's what I find interesting about uh, our ancient past is that everyone, from, whether you're in South America, you'd be talking to people in, in uh, Egypt, and the people in Egypt would be talking to people in Japan, and the people in Japan would be talking to people in the Yucatan. And it's sort of surprising to find these connections uh, by people who, as far as we've been told, were nothing more than hunter-gatherers. They didn't get around much, but it turns out that they were getting around much more than we gave them credit for. Uh, they were master astronomers, great seafarers, and uh, traveling the Pacific for them was as easy as you and I going shopping for a can of baked beans. Uh, and that's what excites me about all these people, that uh, they were all basically working together uh, towards a common end, which is essentially you know, how to uh, live a better life, how to make the best of your life here on the planet, but also to share with other people 
the knowledge that they had experience so that other people might take the experience and uh, project themselves further upward in that stage of evolution. So I kind of find that very sort of exciting and also very positive, uh, least of all because of the kind of state that we've let ourselves into in this particular day and age where we're all fighting over things. Um, it was never like that. So it's it, it, these people serve as a great foundation for uh, achieving a much better life, if you like. Wow. And were these ancient civilizations, were they tapping into their intuition um, and into the sort of metaphysical world? Like, how are they able to, you know, some of the things that have just come out of these ancient civilizations have blown my mind. And so I'm just curious, you know, how are they able to tap into that kind of wisdom, this primordial wisdom and knowledge? What have you seen across the board? Oh, I've sourced three definite scenarios. I mean, there's always one where it's quite possible that people just by sheer experience or the shamanic ability to contact plants, uh, animals, uh, which is what people in the Serengeti and in the Amazon do. I mean, they'll tap into the spirit of the plant because they are so connected to the uh, natural world around them that they're able to bring back information from even the rock uh, a river, anything, uh, because they consider everything to have a consciousness. You know, that's one element. Uh, the second element is that, um, again, through experimentation with various narcotics, you can also access a much finer level of reality and extract information from that reality and bring it back and make it very plausible and practical. And that's something that's still practiced in many parts of the world by indigenous people. And then, of course, there's the uh, written traditions uh, and the oral traditions that state that once upon a time, about 12,000 years ago, we were living side by side with a parallel civilization of what they describe as uh, people who were human-like but not quite human. And uh, they were much different to uh, indigenous people. They tend to be described as quite tall, not giant test, but quite tall, uh, usually about eight and a half feet tall. Uh, they were very light-skinned, apparently, uh, and incredibly, they're also blonde, blue-eyed, and red-haired and green-eyed, which is very strange when you hear that in South America and Polynesia, because you shouldn't have people that otherwise would be known as Caucasian uh, around those regions 12,000 years ago. And yet their old traditions have maintained that these are the people that uh, became known as gods. And not because they were worshipped. Uh, it's actually a very um, big fallacy. What was happening is that there was a cooperation going on between this parallel culture and uh, average hunter-gatherers in a way of a cultural exchange. And they, a, a god back then really meant someone who had complete understanding of the laws of nature and could harness those laws and bend those laws within the confines of the laws themselves. So we tend to think of, um, of, of gods through the Western tradition of Christianity where it's all some white guy with a beard dishing out uh, brimstone from a chair up in the sky. But to ancient people, it was very, very different. Um, and I know this uh, sometimes gets me into trouble with um, the, the woke movement, but it's very misjudged because these are the accounts from the people themselves. Um, there was no sense of superiority of one race over another. There was a cooperation between people. And they were the ones who said that uh, they gave humans the accoutrements of civilization, uh, bit by bit, gradually, uh, because they said that uh, this group of humanoids was – Already, they'd already been on Earth for a considerable amount of time, and that time had come and was already on the wane. And uh, before a great catastrophe wiped just about everybody off 11,000 years ago, um, they were able to provide human settlements with, um, you know, agriculture, animal husbandry, mathematics, the understanding of stars, 
uh, travel through water and so forth. And uh, it was from this that we also get the ancient wisdom teachings. And uh, one of the oldest ones that I've tracked is in Japan. And it's uh, around 8000 BC. We have a series of 17 teachings which form a book called the Kujiki 72. And they are described as the Way of Ise, which is essentially the name of Isis in Japan, which again makes you wonder how on earth an Egyptian goddess ends up in Japan in 8000 BC. But those teachings eventually became the foundation of spiritual development within the Far East. And you find the same teachings again in India in about 6,600 BC. And slowly, they make their way to the Near East in 2000 BC with the Essenes and the Mandeans. And of course, uh, a guy called Yeshua ben Yosef, who learned this stuff from the um, Essenes, and then went on to not found the Christian religion, because he never wanted it uh, to, to start any movement. But essentially, he kick-started this understanding of spiritual development that was embodied in these traditions that goes back much, much further back than uh, this Jesus that we know. And the funny thing is that we also find these teachings in the, in the middle of the Yucatan in South America, uh, in uh, Northern Africa, and in, and in, uh, in Egypt. So it's as part of this worldwide devolution of information that led people, well, it led us to where we are today in terms of the spiritual doctrines that we preach and we, uh, we search for. Uh, these are very, very old systems of knowledge. And uh, despite the fact that we all sort of look at the uh, documentaries on television and buy tons of books, there really is nothing new about them. Uh, they're just rewritten for a new audience of the day. They use slightly different verbs and uh, pronouns, but essentially they're the same teaching. So this is pretty much the um, the three ways in which uh, humans sort of began to understand the knowledge. Uh, and there's, of course, a fourth way, if you're so inclined, which is we're all visited by aliens, uh, which is not outside of the realm of impossibility because so many of the best um, memories of interaction with alien cultures, which are not from this planet, also come from indigenous people, and particularly in Central America and also with the Hopi. So there is a fourth option, but uh, whichever one you choose, uh, that's pretty much where all these things came from. Fascinating. And so I also just want to double click on, um, you mentioned the Essenes. Um, for those listening in who may not have heard of them, uh, can you sort of define um, you know, who they are and some of the, some of the specific uh, teachings that came from them? Because I think that that, that generally has been uh, shared a lot, but a lot of folks may not understand who they are. Well, the Essenes were essentially a uh, kind of brotherhood and sisterhood who uh, lived in the uh, time of Jesus. And their roots really go back into the Middle East and India. Uh, if, you, if you take what they were preaching, it's essentially a reformation of other groups. And this is essentially the, uh, the group that with whom Jesus was associated. And uh, one of the things that gives the game away was the fact that he talks about, uh, in the Bible, talking about, you know, follow me, I am the way. Uh, well, the way is essentially what the uh, teachings of, of Japan and China in 8000 BC were were called. Uh, they were called the Taiyi or the Dao, as we call them. So the Essenes were yet another sect or, or a cult, if you like, in the positive sense of the word, that went around uh, practicing the mysteries of self-development and self-enlightenment. Mm, wow. Uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, these, you call them power places, I think, in um, in your book. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about where these places are and, you know, where places within the world have significant different types of energy and what that means? Oh, they're everywhere. Uh, just like you have meridian points in your body, so the earth also has its own meridians. And these can be moved uh, at will. Uh, it's not that difficult to move uh, these uh 
points of energy because they basically are electromagnetic by nature. And so is the human body. So when you put your mind to it, you can actually move these sort of pathways of invisible force to where you want them. And then you can anchor them with special stone or crystal to make sure they never go away. So places like the pyramids, Stonehenge, uh, those are some of the most popular portals. And uh, the stones are really just there to mark the location where the Earth's telluric currents happen to intersect. And of course, when you step on these currents, your body starts to slowly drift away into a slightly different radio station. Uh, it's not that difficult to do. And unless you sort of are so predetermined not to experience this, I think pretty much everyone uh, who goes to these places has this uh, unusual connection with this other level of reality. So and the portals can be very small as well. I mean, there, there are places in New Mexico, for example. Uh, there's a hill of the Tewa people outside of Santa Fe, and you climb to the top of the hill, and that's their sacred site. And you'll travel there for hours, and you get to the summit, and you'll see absolutely nothing. And you wonder, was this really worth it? Uh, yes, it was, because the native people they didn't need to mark the portals because they couldn't see them. Uh, they're so attached to the land. They see the subtle movement of energy with their inner vision, and they're able to feel exactly where these natural forces create a, a sort of an eddy in the landscape. So when you, whenever you're feeling a little bit out of sorts, and out of touch with your environment uh, and with the bigger picture, you just go and uh, hike to these little places and then sit there, meditate, and slowly the frequencies that are fundamental to these uh, portals will start to alter the frequencies in your body that have been, become attuned to a different radio station, uh, usually one that's not particularly good for you, <laughs> and uh, they slowly invite you to step back into that uh, realm of uh, perfection and balance. And, um, and they're literally everywhere. For example, right now when I'm talking to you from downtown Portland, Maine, I happen to be in my uh, living room uh, exactly in the only location where I can place my desk and my computer. And there's one of these telluric currents running right through the building exactly where I'm sitting. It's almost as though the, the, the apartment was ordained uh, mm. to have me, uh, and I chose it after, uh, after, after sort of carefully selecting many, many others because I felt there's something very special about this location. And uh, so from here, in this uh, very simple place in a city in America, uh, I'm actually now connected to every single sacred site around the world. So any portal uh, that I want to access is now within my grasp because I'm on that conveyor belt. Uh, and that's what makes it really interesting is the fact that this is a practical uh, information. It's a practical technology. And um, these things are everywhere. And the best way to find them in the modern world is usually just the sort of uh, you know, not really fix, fixate on uh, looking for energy, but just tell your body, you know, is there a place here where I can feel perfectly at ease with my environment? And your gut feeling will lead you to a place, whether it's a park, a coffee shop, uh, uh, maybe it's even a, a place where taxis are parked, because you'd be amazed how many of these portals, which are now superseded by cities, are still active. And you often know it because you'll feel a certain connection to the landscape, even though you're living in a modern environment. So just because we don't use large stones anymore doesn't mean that uh, these places are not also available to us in our uh, everyday world. Mm, that's so fascinating. Yeah, I am very, very sensitive to energy and I can feel certain places and spaces. And uh, I was actually just in Santa Fe um, last weekend in Taos and the energy there was extremely intense. Like so those places, for, I don't know, for whatever reason, and I'm curious if you have that kind of reaction, but for me, it feels like I'm extremely like 
you know, tired and there's like almost some kind of massive shift that happens to me when I'm, when I'm in those places. Sedona is another one. Um, when I was in uh, South America and Peru, uh, gosh, I want to say by Machu Picchu, I felt it. Um, yeah. And I'm just, I'm, I'm curious. Oh, Mount Shasta also. I'm curious, like, is that a, is that a reaction that happens to people or is or is everyone kind of different? Oh, it's very much a reaction, and it also depends on where you are in the uh, the landscape of things, because each one of us is different. So some people will find Peru to be very uh, pleasant and alleviating. I find it intense, but that's because of who I am. Uh, I find e- uh, the, the Egyptian portals much easier to cope with, but uh, it took me a while to get to Peru and appreciate Cusco and Sacsayhuaman and other places like that. And by the time you get to Tiwanaku, I mean, your body's positively vibrating and you've got to drink a lot of water and chew like a coca leaf just to compensate. But uh, again, it depends on the person and how you're built and how you're experienced. And for some people, I mean, uh, this becomes a bit of a a junkie fix. And I have to admit, I'm one of them. (laughs) Uh, But again, it depends what your body's looking for. Uh, Mm. So sometimes you just need to go to a place where it's very subtle. Sedona is very subtle for me. Uh, I find the sandstone and the subtlety of the color of the mountains uh, very easy to get along with. Uh, some people are overwhelmed by it. So, again, it really comes down to the, to the individual choice. Um, it's a bit like walking into a music store. Uh, if they still exist, which I hope they do, <laughs> um, it's a bit sad that they don't. Um, it's a bit like walking into a music store and, uh, you know, you, you, you like your classical music and you're hearing punk. And of course, it's not going to go down very easily or very well until you adapt to punk or you reject it. And on the other uh, side of the coin, uh, you could be into heavy metal and you go into a music store that plays new age music and you think, what the hell is that noise? Um, it's funny how that works, but it, it's so true because we're all looking for different things. Mm. Our body craves different things. And so we tend to get attracted to the places that has those missing ingredients so that the body can recalibrate itself. Um, one of the things that people point out when they go to, uh, with me on tour to these places or when I'm sort of helping people design portals um, is, um, you know, t- to be honest, if you know all of this information, you don't really need a physical place in which to connect. And I said, absolutely right, because, you know, you, the body um, is a temple. And if your temple is aligned to everything and you're imbalanced, you don't need any third-party uh, accoutrements to help you connect mm-hmm. because you already are there. It's just that you get um, sort of – you forget that you are connected to the uh, the center of things and the center of the universe. And um, a religion that has a good chance of always reminding us that we are disconnected unless you pay someone a lot of money or go into confession. <laughs> to uh, intervene in your behalf, which is absolute nonsense. Um, you know, you already are a God. You cannot be separate from a creative source. So once you believe that, you don't need any third-party places to go to. But uh, for, for me, as a, a very grounded sort of Torian, I do like to touch, feel, lick, and eat things. So <laughs> for me, I do have to go to these places. They're my sort of family. I, I can't really be without them. Uh, and they're everywhere, uh, no matter where you look, uh, even in places like um, Ohio, where people think, well, it's a very conservative state, there can't be any spirituality here. Uh, I'd say you're completely wrong. Uh, I've seen more uh, sacred places in Ohio than in many parts of America. Uh, there are a lot of mounds there. There's no one buried in them, and they literally are marking the place where the currents happen to intersect. That's why they were put there in the first place. So, yeah, if you look hard enough, uh, you'll find these places. Wow. 
Fascinating, and hello, fellow Taurus. <laughs> I uh, I can spot spot my tribe. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Ah, you have excellent taste. Um, So I want to talk a little bit about, you know, why this knowledge makes a difference in our modern history today. You know, why why is all this knowledge so important for where we are in history and also, you know, coming out of the pandemic um, and where the the human race is going? Oh, it's very important. It always has been. It's been the antidote to, um, and I'm going to quote one of the apostles, the antidote to stupidity. (laughs) <laughs> they actually wrote that. I think it was Thomas that wrote that. And, uh, and uh, James said that it's the antidote, antidote to mind blindness. Uh, and they're absolutely right because we get so sidetracked by politics and shiny cars and buildings. Not that there's anything wrong with those things, but when you start associating with them too much, as Taurians tend to do, ironically, um, you need to be reminded that uh, there's another side to the coin here, which is about the balance. And that balance is to have one foot in the spiritual and one foot in the physical. That's the way to do it. Uh, the teachings are always uh, t- telling you not to be too lighty or not too darky. You've got to be walk the line in the middle because sometimes you have to do a few dark things to get through the day here on earth in order to promote the light. Um, I'm reminded of what was happening in the Middle Ages when so many monks were actually better at yielding a sword than they were yielding a pen simply because of the period. Uh, in order for them to preach uh, the mysteries to people who really uh, were illiterate but were looking for some kind of spiritual doctrine, they literally had to kill people because they were be- being killed uh, in their own right. So they had to protect their territory from uh, subversion, from tyranny. And uh, the- these things have been promulgated from century to century exactly for that reason. And today, and uh, this was something that was also mentioned about 12,000 years ago by the so-called gods, that uh, the reason why they left these instructions for human beings and they built uh, big temples with enormous stones was to stand the test of time until a time when we would lose all these ideas, Mm. when we would lose our connection to the divine, and we had to be reminded. And it's no surprise to me that today I see more people visiting these ancient places, and sometimes just because of frivolous tourism, but there are also a lot of people who are going to these places to take in something different. They feel that they need to be connected to a bigger picture, that they've somehow gone astray, and uh, I find people changing uh, for the better. And this is a wonderful antidote for today's times where, and especially in social media, there's so much propaganda uh, put out there, which is specifically designed to keep the public apart and fighting each other. Uh, We're just seeing it yesterday in the elections in the States, for example. Uh, Even in Britain, where I come from, it's the same thing with Brexit. Um, All this stuff is divisive. It does not serve us. It serves a very few people. So whenever we find ourselves in those places and these dark places, uh, then the teachings are there and they've always have been there to get you back to, you know, plan A, uh, to remind you there's a better way to do this. Uh, you know, don't uh, sort of forsake the physical world because there's a reason why you were born here. You can't just, you know, escape to the mountains, become a monk or a hermit for a hundred years and think that your experience here is, has been solid. Uh, I think you've been missing something. Uh, you're missing the whole purpose of reincarnation or incarnation for that matter. Uh, the, the idea is to be here in the physical world, be present, but at the same time be aware that there are tools that you can use to make your life a much more balanced road. Uh, and that makes a difference between what the uh, people in India called the uh, the corpses and those who are awake. 
Mm, wow. Fascinating. And what an incredible reminder, I think, for all of us in modern society to go back to these sacred sites and to potentially, you know, go on a, a trip with you, right, to explore some of them and and remember the connection to everything and everyone. I think that, to me, is so important. Um, and it's also my intention for setting this intention for setting up this podcast is to really unite uh, people. So I, I thank you for that that comment. I'd also like to learn a little bit more about the healing energy of crop circles. It's something that a lot of people have pinged me and have found very interesting and curious. Can you talk to us about, about this? Yeah, back in the 1980s and the 1990s, which almost seems like a century away now, um, we were getting a lot of very unusual reports from people, mostly skeptics, I should point out, that would go to a field in England and uh, they would have these extraordinary sudden healing experiences. And this shouldn't happen to skeptics. I mean, we had people who were uh, allergic to uh, wheat and yet they'd cross half a mile through a wheat field to go to a crop circle and they'd come back completely healed. Uh, this stuff just does not happen uh, to, uh, to people who are totally... Uh, uh, resigned to the fact that the crop circles are nothing more than hoaxes, which, of course, they're not. Uh, there are people who make them, but they're not the same thing. And we began to collect all these stories about spontaneous healing. We thought, well, where's this going to go? Uh, how can we prove this? And uh, 500 stories later, we'd be, uh, I actually bumped into a group of people in Germany uh, called the Institute of Resonance Therapy, who, unknowns to us, were actually using images of crop circles to send a healing code to uh, rivers and forests in Central Europe that were dying of pollution. And the results were remarkable. Within three years, the revitalization of these places was very evident, and it was highly detailed to the point where even the Austrian government validated this group and even invited them to come and fix a specific problem in the city of Salzburg, which they did, unbeknownst to the local population, and cleared a big black spot in the center of town where people had avoided for uh, decades and suddenly people were there picnicking overnight. Um, what was uh, fascinating was the fact that uh, this information uh, was not only obtainable from people visiting crop circles, it's the fact that a picture of a crop circle, as long as this hasn't been altered in any electronic way, uh, which is a bit rare these days with the internet and uh, the falsification of imagery, the original photograph captures an essence of the energy of the real crop circle. Now, due to the politics of the crop circle uh, arena, that became a bit, also a bit of a problem. And uh, as a graphic designer by trade, and also a person who spent much of his uh, time in England measuring hundreds of crop circles, uh, I had access to all this information. And also I was able to draw the diagrams exactly as they appear on the ground. And it was from the communication with the Institute of Resonance Therapy that I learned of a system, uh, which I, I can't reveal uh, to anyone on the pain of death, uh, <laughs> it's for its own protection, um, a system whereby you can transfer the energy of the crop circle onto these special cards. And um, so we began to sort of experiment with these, and the results were incredible. I mean, it was way beyond what any of us could possibly have expected. I mean, there was people being cured of cancer. There was people being cured of 99% uh, malignant eye tum tumors and so forth. Uh, we had no idea the potential was so huge. But the problem is uh, we have regulatory systems in place to prevent 
all kinds of people uh, who do alternative medicine to get their product out. So that was a big problem and a big challenge. And then one day, quite by coincidence, I was in Santa Fe at a great conference, and uh, I met a, a man who is essentially a genius, uh, Konstantin Korotkov, who is uh, one of the leading directors of the St. Petersburg Institute of uh, Medicine and Science. He actually developed a machine whereby you can actually pick up the residual energy of any object, uh, specifically people. Um, and he, he happened to be in my presentation, and I happened to be in his. And, of course, we just connected immediately. And he said, you know, I've been looking at these crop circle cars that you developed, and I have a machine that can probably uh, show you the actual energy field to show that the cards are actually working, which will help you validate this and take it to market. And I thought, <laughs> well, that would be fantastic if you could do that because I do, I'm hesitant of bringing this to market because I don't want to seem like I'm, I'm some kind of snake, snake oil peddler. And that would be the last thing I'd want and also to mislead people. And he said, well, there's a machine up in Taos. Uh, why don't you go and do a, a blind test? And we did. And sure enough, the um, the pack that had been activated shows uh, an extended energy field around them, exactly as we knew existed. And uh, excuse me. Uh, and uh, I actually put a picture of this up on my on my website to show people the difference. And in, in 22 years, I have never advertised this healing system. I'm not even allowed to mention the word healing, by the way. Uh, otherwise, the FDA will have me in jail uh, <laughs> for obvious reasons, which you can read between the lines. Uh, but um, I've never advertised this system. And yet, to this very day, they just basically, the, the people find them on my website, and then they're still selling like hotcakes. Uh, it's incredible. I've only had one person ever demand their money back because they thought that they were tarot cards. <laughs> and, and, and that says something. <laughs> oh. and, and another person that claims to have been very psychic and thought they were portals for evil entities, which, you know, it's like, well, I, I don't know how I, I can argue this because if people are being healed, then obviously they're being healed by evil entities. That can't possibly be uh, correct. There has obviously a problem with this logic. So, yeah, to this very day, um, no one has ever asked for their money back. So, and some of the, the responses I get from people, and particularly practitioners in the, uh, in the healing world of alternative medicine, uh, the stories are incredible. Uh, and wow. I, I never cease to be amazed by the feedback that I get. But the funny thing is, back in the day when hardly anyone knew what a crop circle was, a good friend of mine in England who's a fantastic and a very gifted psychic, and it runs in her family, uh, she had channeled through the source that was making the crop circles that there were healing modalities to be tapped in the crop circles. And we had no idea what they were talking about at the time. Uh, and now 40 years later, here we are. Wow. I'm I'm getting massive full body chills <laughs> in all these conversations. I'm like, whoa. Oh, we call it the singly winglies. It's a very yes. technical term. Oh my gosh. Wow. Well, I am definitely going to order those cards uh, for sure. I have a, a dear friend in the regenerative um, farming space and is actually one of the pioneers, like leading a lot of uh, things in that in that world. So I'll definitely share this knowledge with her and her community for sure. Um Wow. So, uh, Freddie, can you also talk to us about some of your knowledge on uh, UFOs? And um, we spoke a little bit about aliens, but you know, it's something that a lot of people have been very curious about. I think there's there's been a lot of you know information coming out, but I'm curious, like, what the latest and greatest has been on your end, and um, and what you think is important for us to know about how we sort of fit in into the into the cosmos with UFOs and with aliens. 
Oddly enough, I've only paid it peripheral attention because my attention is always in so many different uh, pies at the same time. But uh, with crop circles, especially, I rub my shoulders with that uh, sort of entity. And a lot of them are not physical at all. We tend to think of aliens as physical people, and they are uh, physical as we are on our level of reality as they are on theirs. But a lot of it is also to do with uh, interdimensional uh, beings, which there's no way we can perceive them except for uh, light and sometimes they'll travel the landscape as balls of light and i used to see these you know sitting on a giant's grave in england having a sandwich and to the point where we just yawn and it's like there's another ball of light there we go and you can communicate with them and they can communicate back and, and they have a very vicious sense of humor as well <laughs> um but essentially uh, i was just reading a, a book by uh, rd six killer smith who's a uh, a professor or used to be a professor at montana state university who actually collected some of the best information about the uh, traditions of the native people of Central America and North America. And uh, it was very enlightening uh, to hear from their point of view of the amount of respect that they have for all of these alien uh, people. And there appear to be as many different types of uh, alien visitors as there are people on Earth, uh, as probably as you'd expect uh, with all things being equal in the universe. So there are very tall Nordic-looking people, which seem to be very svelte and attractive, uh, which is the ones that I like, of course, being the, uh, you know, <laughs> with Venus ruling Taurus, I mean, you can't stop yourself. <laughs> uh, and then you've got the little grey aliens, which are the ones who are the, the mo most notorious ones, who seem to be the ones creating a lot of mischief because they just don't understand uh, humans. They don't understand why humans have emotions or where emotions come from. And you tend to see a lot of uh, people who have negative experiences uh, with uh, alien abductions uh, mentioning the greys as being the, uh, but the particularly troublesome ones. But, it's, uh, is it, but the same thing also applies to us here on Earth. I mean, how guilty do most people feel about us putting uh, chickens in a coop and uh, dissecting rats in a lab? Well, we probably don't think twice about it. And I think the same, the same thing applies to them. Uh, not that it's right, of course, and I don't agree with it, but still, what happens down here on Earth uh, easily multiplies throughout the universe. But the one thing that uh, did become very obvious, and particularly in relationship to ancient sacred sites and crop circles particularly, is the fact that they are also used as portals uh, for travelers uh, because the, the sites themselves are exactly where the magnetic currents happen to be. So to see a, a sort of a, a what they call the flying shields in the Hopi tradition landing next to an ancient sacred site in Central America is really no big deal because they're using these magnetic strips as conveyor belts to get from A to B. And I remember one story of uh, one watchman at Chichen Itza or um, or nearby, I think it was actually Tikal, I beg your pardon, and um, he said that uh, it was just incredible to see these people coming out of this, um, essentially this flying saucer, and they didn't bother using the entrance of the temple, Just they just went into the stone. So they basically could uh, go through matter uh, as easily as you and I cross one room to the next. And uh, they also have a very interest, uh, big interest in what we're doing down here because all the things that we do down here, specifically to do with war, uh, these things have repercussions and uh, they echo into eternity. Uh, so they are very much concerned about how we've taken the information that we discussed at the beginning of the program uh, and uh, misused it for all kinds of nefarious means. So they have a vested interest in the outcome of what we're doing right now. And there's a lot of different entities circling around the planet at the at present. 
Uh, I think Stephen Greer also mentioned this. He's a, like a pioneer uh, in interstellar communication. Um, they all mentioned that uh, there's a lot of interested parties surrounding the Earth and uh, making this guys very, very busy because they have a vested interest in what happens down here. And uh, the crop circles are one way of inputting ideas into the Earth grid to allow humans to interact with them, to give ourselves the, uh, uh, the idea of whether we should go to plan A or plan B. Uh, they're offering us a choice. Uh, they're not telling us what to do, but they are inputting ideas into the grid. And some people wake up because of the uh, their interaction, and some people are reacting negatively. And, you know, there's a pushback against it. And you see a lot of it now in the uh, world arena in politics. Uh, so many countries suddenly turning to right-wing governments, which is the last thing you'd expect in a in a system that has been experiencing democracy for the last 100 years. And that's because there's so much uh, resistance to change. Uh, these old dinosaurs don't want the old ways to go away. And, of course, you're going to uh, get this black and white movement. So there's a lot of assistance being given to us. And one of the things that I remember from one of the meetings with the channelers uh, was that, uh, we, and I quote, we are more than happy to assist you uh, if you ask us for help, okay? But we can't intervene in the uh, functions of the earth or human affairs because the whole pe- uh, portion of uh, the whole purpose of being here is to live your life and experience the world. Uh, we cannot violate the uh, first rule of the universe, which is the rule of non-intervention. Uh, and Star Trek, Star Trek fans will know this. It's called the Prime Directive. And um, they're saying we can only suggest, but you have to ask us for assistance. And um, the way we do it is by making crop circles and putting the information in the crop circles, so then you can go and extract information and apply it. Or we'll suggest things to certain scientists about uh, technology that uh, gets you away from fossil fuel. And I can say, hand on heart, that there has been an anti-gravity device developed in England, America, and Australia, which is based on a crop circle design. And that's all I can say for now. Uh, to protect the um, the safety of the scientists that are involved. So there, there's a lot of good news in the background. Uh, it's just that right now there's so much um, negativity in the media, not because the media is negative per se, it's because uh, they understand that conflict sells newspapers or that sells podcasts or whatever. Uh, it's just the way the humans are wired. We like conflict. We thrive on conflict. Uh, I remember a newspaper in Britain at the turn of the century that survived for 26 years publishing nothing but good news, and people got bored of it. Uh, so it, I, I think fundamentally we're nihilists at heart. <laughs> we all, you know, even people who pretty much enjoy a new age outlook and i know so many people in so many countries that you know uh, practice and preach spirituality and i and i watch them saying that the foulest main things after covid and the, all the experiences that we've had so uh, yeah i think we're sort of hardwired to get into that negative state mm. uh, so the idea is that uh, there are a lot of antidotes going around and we don't we hardly see them but they are there i mean for example uh, every once in a while on Facebook, uh, you'll see some enormous in, uh, and important invention done by a 22-year-old to clear plastic floating in uh, yacht marinas and in uh, and ship harbors. And it's the simplest device which just basically floats on the surface and picks up uh, the uh, plastic into this drain, which when it fills up, you just pick it up, put it in the, in the dumpster and put it back in the ocean. So there are all of these great ideas going around at the moment. Uh, but before we see these coming up, you're going to see a lot of darkness because that's just the way things are. Uh, so once you start creating a lot of darkness, eventually you also start generating its very own opposite. 
And it's a principle uh, known in physics as the uh, law of chaos. Uh, the more the, uh, the chaos that you see, the greater the potential jump to a new level of order. So everything in nature has its own balance. So I wouldn't get too uh, sort of um, downside of the battle or negativity because there's already an upside taking place. Uh, it's just that it's keeping a low profile so that it doesn't get uh, too many arrows shot at, which is uh, not the way to uh, uh, get attention these days. <laughs> uh, the people who are doing all the best work keep a low profile. They don't want to have arrows on their backs. Mm, I love that so much. I, I, and thank you for also mentioning, you know, the, the chaos, the chaos theory, I think is what it's called. Um, and I think because a lot of people sort of, I think, are moving into this sort of despair or polarization or, um, you know, speaking about like the end of the world, but sort of not really recognizing that. Uh, yeah, like you said, like in order for energy to change, it actually has to go through this period of of chaos and um, to shift to a different level. So I'm I'm a big fan of that. And you know, it's interesting what you mentioned uh, about uh, the folks. You know, these these folks that are channeling um, these inter interdimensional beings or whatever the, whatever it's called um, about wanting to help us and also just really wanting to move humanity forward if we ask and if we pray. And I, I found that tool of prayer. I sort of like left it for a long time and then found it six, seven years ago. And it has been so phenomenal to just ask for what you want. You know, I think a lot, a lot of people don't do that enough and especially not ask for what you want, but what humanity needs, like, or what you think humanity needs and how we can create our, co-create a better world. Um, so I'm, I'm curious, Freddie, if you have sort of an invocation or um, a prayer that you think of when it comes to moving humanity forward. I just drink heavily. Um, <laughs> that works. Um, <laughs> we all have our own tools. Uh, but seriously, I actually um, – no, I don't. I, I, I don't sit there and pray all the time. I was raised as a Catholic, and now I've recovered, I think. Um, so <laughs> prayer for me is like, oh, God, do I have to sit there kneeling with my hands together? Uh, I have other ways of doing it, and I find that just having a very clear thought uh, with a lot of passion behind it does it. That's all you need. A simple three-second thought, an affirmation, a thought of love and appreciation, and particularly for the – and I call them people because I see them as people. A lot of the people that help me in my work and what I write and what I do and what I research because they're always there. They're very invisible, uh, but I know they're there, and that's a very close relationship that I have with them over the years. I just send them a little, a little bouquet of love in my mind, and in three seconds, they've got it. Uh, that's all you need. And I also have a you know, three thousand um, plus album library, which is my psychologist or my psychiatrist. Mm. Uh, so I have music for everything. That's my form of prayer. Uh, if I'm feeling down or extremely exuberant, I find a way of calibrating things by just picking up one album out of three thousand, mm. putting it on, and going, "Oh, I feel much better now." Um, so we all have our different tools. Some people just like uh, their way of prayer is to walk around in the garden or go for a drive. I mean, I can't tell you how exhilarating it is to, uh, you know, get in the Mini Cooper and being six foot five and go for a very <laughs> fast drive without being a danger or a menace to others on the road, which is very important. And I feel so much better. And the world around me, I can see the world around me reacting to it because it's my passion. Uh, that uh, creates that uh, sense of prayer and the world around it reacts to it. They understand what I'm saying. Um, and also the temple, uh, my reaction also with the temples as well. I just came back from Egypt with another group 
um, which is uh, that group is like sold out for years. I, uh, there's like 350 people on a waiting list. And the idea is to basically go there uh, to these places and uh, state your function. Uh, before you arrive in Egypt or any place, state your function. That's your prayer. Why, why did you come on this tour? Uh, and uh, when they say, well, I came because of you, well, that doesn't count. Okay? <laughs> uh, I am not the reason for the tour. You're the reason for the tour. I'm just the mouthpiece. And uh, I said, just remember what brought you here because that's your prayer. And just remember that every day because one of these temples will, uh, will have heard that prayer uh, and that thought. And if it's honestly meant and it's well-directed and it's full of passion, then you will find that somewhere on this trip, uh, you're going to be crying like, uh, you know, I don't know, something that cries very much. And I see grown men, uh, you know, complaining after five days uh, they haven't had an experience yet. And all <laughs> the women are having experiences. And I said, well, just you wait till you get to Edfu. Why? Don't think it through. Don't logicalize it. Just, just wait. And sure enough, you get to Edfu, and I just watch grown men with tears in their eyes. And you think, I've done my job. It's wonderful. So that's their way of doing prayer. Uh, we all have our different ones. And, and usually when I uh, go to these places, I just set a little intent. And I say, you know, what is this place for? What is it here to teach? And how can I teach it in a better way? And that's my prayer to the temple. I just mm. go walking. I expect nothing in return. And when I do, I'm pleasantly surprised that when I get back to the, uh, the car, I'm writing like a gibbering idiot. Wow. Amazing. Amazing. I love that. Like, what is this place meant to teach me and setting that intention early on? Um, we have a, a huge audience, you know, listening from the Middle East. So I'm um, sure that they're going to be very interested to learn more about what what you're doing in Egypt. I'm also just personally curious. My parents are uh, from Iraq and um, curious oh. if, <laughs> yeah, if you've also seen any kind of interesting um, mo you know, portals in, in other parts of the Middle East beyond the, the pyramids. Oh, they're everywhere. Uh, unfortunately, they're being uh, destroyed and dismantled one by one by warfare or, uh, uh, you know, fundamentalist religion. It's pretty sad. Uh, one of the ones I really pray for is the the Blue Mosque at Isfahan in Iran. Uh, that's one place which I have yet to see, and I really would like to see it. And I hope that uh, no one lays a finger on it because it's one of the most beautiful beautiful odes to spirituality it doesn't matter uh, if you're muslim Bu uh, buddhist christian it doesn't matter it's beyond, it's above all of that it's a uh, a piece that was built with love to describe the creator god um that's one of them uh, for, for certain and there's a lot of the mounds as well that border around iraq iran and also to the north in armenia and also around siberia uh ukraine uh crimea uh, I won't call it Russian Crimea. <laughs> I'll call it Ukrainian Crimea. Uh, all of those mounds originally went down to the Sumerian provinces uh, before Sumeria was created, and they formed the fundamental pin of that culture in the Middle East. Uh, they originally came from the Armenian highlands. I had no idea until I was researching my current book. And um, it turns out that a lot of these places, uh, they look like artificial mountains. But uh, when you go in, they, are, they have these small stone chambers, which only go about a third of the way inside. And that's where the spiritual leaders of these sects used to go. Uh, they used to uh, basically sit around in these circles uh, on the interior and go into the shamanic state. And they've even found these cups made of gold, uh, which have tins, uh, tinges of um, narcotics and cocaine in them, uh, while they were actually 
smoking a specific herb in the chamber, they will also take a narcotic to put themselves in a mildly uh, sort of shamanic state and then bring back information. So these spaces are very, very important. Uh, they are what would become in later years the uh, mounds of the, and the giant's graves of uh, France and Britain. And they're still there to this very day. Wow. Fascinating. Wow. Uh, Freddie, I'd love to understand a little bit more about what drew you to this world and this space. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey? Like what really brought you here? Oh, my journey was, uh, I think that we're all sort of preordained to come here to do something. Uh, and some people are very lucky. They figure it out from day one and they die blissfully happy. Uh, others, uh, they kind of know that something's going on and then they get distracted by beautiful girls, beautiful boys, shiny cars, big houses. Uh, and I kind of went there. Uh, I was drawing pyramids when I was three. And then uh, because of you know personal experiences, uh, home life, school life, which is absolutely awful, um, I slowly made my way over to, um, to the world of hard rock music, which uh, I had big dreams of becoming a rock guitarist with long hair, and watching 8,000 armpits raised towards me in glory um, <laughs> because uh, essentially I was so lacking in, in ego. I, had, I think I had a, a negative or deficit number in the <laughs> ego department when I was growing up. Um, it was kind of funny. And so I, I, I kind of made up for it by going much more into the uh, material world to look for things which would give me self-worth. And, you know, and, I, and I went through all of that. I mean, I made lots of money. I was a creative director in advertising. I got awards for my work. Um, I was a, uh, a professional photographer. Um, yes, I was in a, in a rock band as well. Uh, I knew I didn't quite have the talent that it took, and I was quite self-aware about that, and, uh, and just uh, and just as well. Uh, otherwise, I would have uh, died an unhappy life in some drug den somewhere, depressed. But something uh, always stayed with me during my professional life, and that was that something just didn't make any sense. Uh, I did not see the world as most people see it. Uh, I always felt myself... Uh, to be slightly separate from everything, like I'm an observer, a watcher. Uh, that was a piece of glass between me and everything else. And uh, during times when I was uh, fired from my job for having a conscience and saying things like, no, we can't sell artificial sweetness to people because those things kill you, and they're the things that make you fat. Uh, and it's true, by the way. Uh, so I'd be uh, in my porch sitting at home, you know, na uh, navel grazing, and going, you know, why am I being... You know, losing, why, why lose, uh, lose my job because I have a conscience? I'm surely I'm trying to do the right thing here. And it was at those moments I look at my, my shelves and go, wait a minute, I bought that book on the pyramids like 15 years ago. I never got a chance to read it. So rather than looking for a job, I sit down reading these books and slowly something just awoke in me. And then the crop circle uh, world appeared in front of me. And I knew exactly what it was when I first saw it. I mean, I just knew what it was saying. Of course, I couldn't explain it, but I had to go uh, and put myself knee-deep into it and research it. And lo and behold, I became a best-selling author with my first book, uh, which has just celebrated its 20th anniversary, actually, and still uh, selling like hotcakes. Um, and it was at that moment I took a leap of faith because I realized there was something else going on here in the world and uh, it was of great benefit to people. And it was my direct experiences of being uh, levitated inside a crop circle, of being taken out of body, of meeting the people who were behind the uh, core of the crop circles, uh, who I've since met, by the way, coming out of the stones in the Great Pyramid of Giza. And I had no idea that was even possible. It was those moments that um, gave me the confidence to step away from a, 
a lucrative yet uh, totally fruitless career uh, doing something else that I really had no passion for, uh, other to, uh, to raise my bank balance, uh, take a big leap of faith and um, go into the work that I'm doing now. And I haven't stopped touring in, what, 22 years? Uh, it's difficult and it has a lot of challenges and it's very lonely, but I love what I do. And I see people reacting to it positively. And uh, every day I get a, a thank you email from somebody saying that something that I wrote uh, has changed their lives for the better. And I can't ask for anything better than that. So I can honestly say that it was my direct experiences in the natural world through interacting with the spirit world, uh, whether it's in the crop circle, a pyramid, a Stonehenge or a giant's grave. Uh, or in an Irish graveyard where you're standing there and there's a little, a little pixie holding on to your fingers, uh, <laughs> looks very naked with an onion head and a big belly. I mean, and, and they have a, a, they're particularly proud. If you try to pick them up, they'll start sort of screaming at you <laughs> <laughs> in a very funny way. Those things change you. I mean, those experiences change you and you begin to appreciate people who've been laughed at because of these experiences. And now I see the, uh, see them as being very important people in the way uh, that shapes our metaphysical culture. So yeah, I think through experience, direct experience, and also by having that self-confidence of seeing my work actually uh, bring back some kind of uh, living uh, has given me that confidence to go forward and keep doing it. So let's mm. hope it stays that way because I, I have no plans to retire. <laughs> That's amazing, Freddie. Amazing. Wow. And what sort of things have surprised you the most on this journey? If you like look back at your career in this space, you know, what has surprised you the most? Oh, that's a difficult one. Um, the, the hypocrisy of people. Uh, I mean, I lost my, uh, uh, my marriage, my friends, my house, everything. Uh, all the people that I thought were had my back. Uh, when I went off to do something that basically was a challenge to their worldview, they weren't there. Uh, of course, I've picked up other people along the way, which have uh, kind of helped smooth things out. But yeah, it was it was actually learning more about human beings uh, is what uh, I've picked up more than anything else. The people are unusual; they're complicated. Uh, they are a lot of them are full of fear and unreasoning fear for that uh, because they just don't know. They uh, they're trying to latch onto someone else's idea or what life is. And one day, when they find that that person that they've been following, that their compass was pointing south and not north, well, then they're on the edge of a cliff and they fall off like lemmings. Or if you're self-aware enough, you'll get to the edge of the cliff and you turn back. And uh, you learn to rely on yourself and your own experiences. Um, that's been the biggest surprise of all, uh, that uh, you know we have all these potentials around us. Uh, and in the end, it's about you. Uh, it's a very selfish journey when you think about it. You're here to try and improve yourself. And if you're lucky, you'll improve other people along the way. Um, if you can do that, if you can leave the world 1% better than when you uh, found it, then you've done a good job. So the biggest surprise is also to discover that uh, you are not a, a limited being. You have a huge potential. Uh, and uh, where there used to be a lot of fear and anxiety in my life, uh, that's now been replaced by a healthy confidence. And uh, I really have been able to sort of conquer my fear to a huge degree. And in fact, uh, someone was reminding me of this um, a while ago about the things that I teach uh, on my trips, and uh, specifically in Egypt, which is all to do about the uh, overcoming of fear. A lot of the temples really are designed to do that. And someone asked me, um, has it worked for you? I said, well, actually, I don't know. And then I thought, actually, I do know. Uh, there was one evening uh, about a decade ago, I was coming back home in the evening after watching a really good movie. 
And, you know, you're walking up the street and Portland, Maine doesn't have uh, much, if any, violence or any crime. And um, you're walking in the evening by yourself and you're uh, thinking about the movie and what a wonderful time it was and the plots and the characters. And there's some idiot somewhere on the other side of the street shouting something at me. And, you know, I've come back down to earth. I said, what the hell is he shouting at? He's going out about the fact that, oh, he's got a gun, he's going to shoot me, he's taking me down, MF. And I thought, and in one split second, I I can remember this very clearly now, in one split second I went through all the possible variations of what could happen. One, uh, he's going to shoot me dead, and that's the end of that. And I thought, well, that's not acceptable. My job isn't finished, and that really annoys me. Two, I can look for a rock and uh, defend myself. And there's nothing on the on the pavement around me. So I figured, okay, option three, I'm going to turn around and do the one thing he's not expecting. I'm going to project confidence. I'm going to put <laughs> the fear back into him. And I just turned around and started walking very vibrantly towards him <laughs> with that look that says, don't mess with me. If you hurt me, I'm taking it down with me. And next life, I'm going to deal with you on the other side, and it's going to hurt. And he just ran. And I realized, wow, I, I, you know, I didn't have any fear. I mean, it was I should have just put my hands up and given up. I didn't. I actually confronted that, and I thought, my God, I actually have, I'm practicing when I'm preaching. <laughs> and since then, it's actually come in very handy. I mean, there have been cases where, again, situations which have been, as we call, dodgy, involving uh, very serious people with big guns in uh, certain parts of the world. And uh, I just get out of the bus. The tour group's feeling a bit anxious. I just get out of the bus with a uh, big box of uh, sweets or cookies, which is a great way to uh, bring down any uh, kind of uh, attention. And uh, these guys, I think we're in Guatemala at the time. It was a police checkpoint. And uh, they're looking a bit serious. Look like they wanted a bit of money, which is usually what solves the the problem. And I started speaking in Spanish and uh, (laughs) offering them some sweets and talking about their mirrored Ray-Bans and how cool they were. And they had the biggest smiles on their face. And after about five minutes of exchanging sweets and uh, talking about Ray-Bans and making them feel good about themselves, you know, because that was the whole point. They wanted to be taken seriously. They suddenly realized that we're of absolutely no consequence whatsoever. We don't mean any harm. And they let us go. And the whole bus was like, I can't (laughs) believe you just did that. I said, well, that's why you fail. You see, that's the whole purpose. It's about learning to conquer your fear. So that's been one of the biggest things that surprised me uh, about myself and how um, I've been able to change as an individual having gone completely in the opposite direction, which means that if, if it can happen to me, it can happen to anybody else. Wow, wow. Wow. Amazing. Amazing. And uh, Freddie, what do you want to tell our listeners as your main takeaway about their wellness, their well-being, their, you know, what's, what's your call to action for folks who are tuning in? Drink heavily, take camphor <laughs> regularly because it's a good hallucinogenic and it cures uh, all kinds of diseases, including COVID, by the way. Wait, take what? Uh, I'm, actually, I'm actually very serious about that. Uh, camphor was the one ingredient that actually cured bubonic plague ironically in china and uh, it's great for cleaning your respiratory system you get a great night's sleep you get great visions and uh, yeah you get you maintain a good healthy series of lungs and uh, a little bit of scotch is also very good for keeping the bacteria away but again the trick is to you know lubricate the machinery don't over oil it uh, that's the rule um but at the same time uh, and and very seriously uh, don't beat yourself up about getting things wrong because uh, if you were perfect, you wouldn't have come here. 
I mean, mm. think about it. Uh, any any god, any person that's achieved everything, why would they bother coming here? The whole point of incarnating is to come and perfect yourself. Mm. You still don't know everything. So if you mess up, uh, take steps steps to remedy it. You know, do corrections, do apologies, uh, forget about the ego thing, um, and then just realize, okay, uh, I'm not perfect. I can make mistakes. The trick is not to fall down too often, <laughs> and uh, and learn to live another day and do it better again. Because at the end, no one's going to judge you but yourself. And the Egyptians made sure of that because when you finally do cross over, there'll be forty two entities reminding you of what you've done and what you haven't done, and then you have to do a self assessment for. That's how it works. And then you can choose to come back or you can choose not to. Uh, you can say, I know where I went wrong, but I've learned from that. Now I want to go and live on a planet surrounded by baby pandas and baby elephants for another million years, <laughs> which actually sounds like a very good idea. So the <laughs> trick is not to beat yourself up of uh, the things that you do. Uh, learn to get the right tools. Uh, don't believe everybody all the time because not everybody is perfect, including me. Um, and take the tools that make sense and then come up with your own toolbox. And that way you will never go wrong. Amen. I love that. I love that. Wow. Uh, Freddie, you are so fascinating. I learned so much from this conversation. I feel like there's just a wealth of knowledge in you. And uh, where can people find you if they want to learn more about you and your work and also where they can order the Healing Crop Circle cards? Oh, that's very easy. Just go to invisibletemple.com because it's all about the invisible temple, if you know what I mean. <laughs> okay, amazing. And we'll leave that in the show notes. Uh, thank you so much for your time, Freddie. This, oh, my pleasure. This was so wonderful. And for our audience, thanks for joining and for listening. You can tune into Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one -on -one conversations with leading experts in wellness, well-being, and spirituality. 